So we're going to be talking about generosity this morning from the book of uh, Proverbs. I don't know if um, any of you picked up The Economist this week, but there's a little interesting article in here called God and Mammon. Is it possible to manage money successfully and be a virtuous Christian? I don't know if this is a lot of money, but it says here, properly properly mobilized, the Christian investment industry could be powerful. This particular broker says he places the stock bond, stock and bond holdings of American Catholics and Protestants at roughly $21 trillion. I'd like to think that uh, that's more than I've got in my account, but I don't know how much that is really. It sounds to me like a lot of money. So the question uh, he's asking here, is it possible to manage money successfully and be a virtuous Christian? That's the first line of this article. Is it? (laughs) Christian investors mostly fall into three camps. Those willing to forge a partnership with environmental, social, and government types those opposed to them, and Roman Catholics. So I don't know what any of that really means. He talks about his job being to search for the intersection, this is the fund manager, to search for the intersection between good business practice and church values. I think it's far deeper than church values. Uh, Church values are great, but um, something needs to happen in our hearts. And in fact, the title of that article is, Can You Serve Both God and Mammon? Not, Can You Manage Your Money? Can you serve God and money? So we're going to look at money. Money and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Which if you have young children in your house, you will know is a play on a very popular children's book. Alexander and the very terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Or for those of you who like a shorter title, the wisdom of generosity. So here's a question for you. Is money good or bad? Think about it. Think of a more than a one word answer. (laughs) To yourself. How about this as a proposition? Money is neutral on its own, but money is never on its own. So yes, money is neutral on its own, but money is never on its own in the sense that my money 
comes into my life at this point in my life with my pressures going on and my theologies and my insecurities and my godliness and my ungodliness, into that comes money and it's no longer neutral. Money joins what's ever in your heart. And in that sense, it's like a magnifying glass. It magnifies what's already there in your life. So, if you're generous and money comes into your life, you become more generous. It doesn't change, it just magnifies what's there. If you're selfish, money comes into your life, it magnifies that and you become more selfish. Let's turn to our first proverb. Proverb 11, verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Wealth is worthless. Now, obviously, we need to understand that the Proverbs crank everything up. Lots of hyperbole in the Proverbs in order to try and land a punch. Lots of contrasts. So, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So, just to unpack this proverb a little bit, it's probable that when we hear the day of wrath, we think the day of judgment. And that is not what it's saying. So, you know, words are used differently in different parts of the Bible, meaning different things. You have to have the context to understand what's being said. But generally in Proverbs, the day of wrath is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. The day of wrath is the day you get the news that your loved one has a terminal condition or the day you find out that your loved one has died, or the day you are betrayed by a friend, or have your heart broken. It's the day that, relationally, the worst things that could possibly happen, happen. In that day, in that day, wealth is worthless. But, Righteousness delivers from death. If you take Proverbs as a whole, you'll see themes coming up again and again about righteousness and wickedness, especially as it relates to money. And just to slightly illuminate that, one commentator has said, it might be helpful to think of those two in these categories. The righteous think of their wealth as Benefiting, benefiting the community to their own disadvantage. Whereas the wicked think of benefiting themselves to the community's disadvantage. Those two themes come up again and again and again. 
Righteousness delivers from death. You see, what happens with money is it magnifies what's happening in your heart. And the Bible talks about it as being deceptive. It literally lies to us. One can think to oneself in your head, I'm very good at making money. And your heart says, you're very good. You could think in your head, financially, I've done better. And your heart says, I am better. It lies to us. This isn't inevitable. It's magnifying what's happening in your heart. It's not inevitable, but it is possible. And we're warned and warned again. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Wealth lies to us and tells us to hope in it, to be defined by it. Our second proverb comes from chapter 18, verses 10 and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. When that verse comes to your mind, do you remember that it's in the context of money? The second half, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. So obviously to understand a proverb like this, you need to understand what's meant by a fortified city in the time when this verse was being written. A fortified city was a place of safety. It was a place of status. It was a place of commerce. And if you were outside the city, you were vulnerable. You were vulnerable to wild animals. I'm not talking about stepping over the line where it says you're outside Cambridge city limits. I'm talking about centuries ago when there was the wilderness and there was the city. And if you were outside the city, you were at the mercy of criminals, robbers, warring tribes, friends fighting, foreign armies passing through, storms. If you're outside the city, you're vulnerable. And if you see danger on the horizon, you run to the city. This Bible verse is obviously clearly saying that the rich imagine that their wealth will bring them security. In one translation I read, it said something like, 
through failure of imagination, they cannot conceive of the fact that their money will not save them. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Put your hope in God. So, what does it mean by the name of the Lord is a strong tower? The name of the Lord, his identity, his reputation, what's understood when people hear his name, what's understood when we hear his name, who God is. A friend of mine recently sent me a WhatsApp message saying, what do you think my strengths are? And uh, without thinking about it for a second, I wrote back, I mean, I might have taken a while to write back to him. And if you're in this room, I'm sorry that I didn't respond instantly. But as soon as I started to think about it, I had an instant response. You, your greatest strength is that you love God. And I really meant it. Who you love, what you love, is one of the most important things about you. And in this particular person's case, I know he was really looking for what are my giftings, but he actually said, what is my strength? And I said, your strength is that you love God. You're consumed by God. He looms large in your life and in your imagination, in your affections. Our God is our Father. Now, I know there are distorted experiences of fatherhood in this room, and even the best possible experience of fatherhood falls short. But that's no reason to throw away the pictures that the Bible gives us. Let's embrace what the Bible tells us about God being our Father. We come from him. We are named for him. We are related to him. We are his heirs. He knows everything. I've had so many meetings in the last two weeks where people give me a revelation. They're scared, they're nervous. It's been a long time coming. They tell me something, and I already know. Have you ever had that situation? You can see a couple getting together before they see themselves getting together. Everyone's smiling, they've had that, okay? You can see that someone's struggling with something before they can see it sometimes. Whatever you feel frightened of telling God, he already knows. He knows everything. He's in perfect control of all of history. The God of time and eternity orchestrates all history. Our God, he reigns. He's our father. He knows everything. He's in control and he loves us. He loves us deeply. These are things that transcend momentary troubles. He is our strong tower, and we must run to him. So it magnifies 
what's in our hearts. It's neutral, but it magnifies what's in our hearts. It can lie to us, so we need to be careful not to be deceived by sin. And I imagine, this isn't really a stretch, I've never had the privilege of being a squillionaire, but I imagine the more money you have, the more bad you can do, and the more good you can do with that money, in a sense. I can remember talking to my youth leader when I was growing up, saying, you know, he was married, we were talking about marriage. I said to him, have you ever been tempted to have an affair? And he said, look at my face, Daniel. No one's going to have an affair with me. (laughs) He said, what you need to understand is that different people are tempted by different things through life, partly just because of who they are, the circumstances around them. I'm never going to be tempted by having an affair, he said. No woman would ever give me the chance. Perhaps those of us who aren't sitting on $21 trillion of investment funds uh, are not so consumed by the power that money wields. But some in this room have uh, enough for it to be a big part of how they think about life. I think that's true of all of us. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another one withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. He who refreshes, who refreshes others will be refreshed. Money and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Money is no good in the day of wrath. We look to God. There is wisdom in generosity. That's what this verse says. In God's economy, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, it is qualified, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. In the New Testament, Jesus says, is it Jesus? Someone says, whoever (laughs) sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Where does that come from? Galatians, Galatians, as I said. (laughs) Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. You sow seed, but you reap grain, a harvest, food. Okay, so you don't... There is this idea out, especially in um, prosperity gospel circles, that you sow a seed of faith, and then you get a return on your investment financially. That's to misunderstand that verse completely. Uh, This verse is talking about grain, seed which you can either put in the ground so that you get a harvest, or you can put it in the shed until it eventually goes rotten. If you sow, you will reap a harvest. But if you store away unduly, it turns to dust. It can't benefit you. There's this amazing thing in God's economy where the last are first. First. 
where the teacher learns the most, where the one who refreshes others is themselves refreshed. That is the beautiful wisdom of God's economy. And where you put your money tells you a lot about what you love. We know that, don't we? Talk to anybody about their hobbies. My friend, who has got six bicycles, he's very, very tall. He's about six foot four. So his bicycles are also very, very tall and big and very expensive. How many bicycles do you need, I say? Just one more. <laughs> Jamie, how many guitars have you got? Six. Six. <laughs> Seven. <laughs> and if you were to be asked, how many guitars is enough? Just one more. Or two. Or two. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember saying to someone that um, I'd been given a very, very expensive Bible, a couple of hundred pounds, and they were shocked and appalled that anyone would spend so much money on a Bible. And I said, well, how much is that phone in your pocket? Oh, this is like 1,500 pounds. Well, mine isn't 1,500 pounds. Mine is 100 pounds from you know, some second-hand electrical retailer because it's not that important to me. I'm not saying I'm better. I'm just saying we tend to spend our money on things that are important to us and can find it very easy to justify that without thinking about it. I won't go on to shoes and clothes and academic books and all the things we spend our money on. It tells you a little bit about what you love, about where your heart is. It can tell you about your heart, but it can also form your heart, because it says where your treasure is, that's first, there your heart will be also, that follows. Sometimes it's good to proactively do things to combat the attitudes in our hearts, you know, to kneel down when you're feeling proud, to bless someone in prayer when you're feeling cross with them to give to a situation when you're feeling disconnected from it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My mum was one of six children, and um, her mum, my granny, was a, a maid in service. So if you've ever seen Downton Abbey, sort of the lowest on the rung, that was my granny. And um, they were given one of the very first council houses ever built in England, in uh, St. Mary's Cray in London, which is a massive council estate. They were so poor that uh, of the six children, the, all the boys slept in the shed all their lives. Like, all their lives. Not sometimes, all their lives. And. Uh, I have a very, very fond memory of that strong smell of creosote. Because I used to hang out in their bedroom, in my uncle's bedroom, which was a, a shed with camping, camping uh, beds in it. 
play with their old toys, just smelling creosote. <laughs> and um, at one point, the government, in their wisdom, took my mum away from her family and put her in care because they said, you just literally cannot afford to feed your child. So my mum's got uh, a stutter, which kind of sort of manifests itself in the sense that she begins a word, and then she gets to the end of it. And she's in her 70s now. And um, she traces it back to that moment where she was taken away. They were very happy family. Very, very happy. I think the most happy family, apart from our family, that I've ever known. Really beautiful, kind, um, just got on with it. But if you were going to buy a bicycle, you had to buy a Doors bicycle. And if you were going to buy shoes, you had to buy Clark's shoes. And if that means that we don't eat for a month, then it's worth it, because you've got to have a good pair of shoes. I don't know if your family was like that about Clark's shoes or Doors bicycles, but I think they went cheap on absolutely everything except Clark's shoes and Doors bicycles. You have to have a good pair of shoes and you have to have a good bicycle. I mean, those aren't that expensive, are they, in the scheme of things? It's not like someone's made a cast of your foot and is making handmade leather shoes at your beck and call. They're just Clark's shoes. But it occurred to me very early on that there are some things it's legitimate to spend money on, and there are other things that it isn't legitimate to spend money on. It told me a little bit about them. One of the things was the only way they could get work was to cycle to wherever the work was. They couldn't have a car. Neither could they afford not to go. So they cycled, sometimes hours and hours and hours. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where you spend your money tells you a little bit about what you value. So how much should we give? If money is neutral, and uh, it tells us a little bit about our hearts. You know, the Old Testament standard is 10%. Um, it's far more than that if you actually calculate it, but it's at least, at the very least, 10% first fruits. So you don't give when you spend all your money on what you need. You give, and then you spend your money on what you need. That's called the tithe, 10%. But then we come to the New Testament. Did Jesus tithe his life? Did Jesus make a calculation, in order to save these people, I need to give 10% of myself to save them? He laid down his life completely. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. We had a conversation a few months ago. Perhaps we should speak on giving at some point. Perhaps we should speak on money. Perhaps we should speak on the economic crisis that we're going through. We've done both. 
because in the day of wrath, wealth is not your fortified city. And a day of wrath, in some ways, seems to be upon us economically in a way that it hasn't before. Some of you are feeling that more acutely than others. And I have had a few conversations with people where I've said, I'm really noticing X, expecting them to say, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? And actually what they say is, I haven't noticed. And that's okay. We're a diverse congregation. Some of you will not notice uh, for a while because of the wealth you have. Others are feeling absolutely every single bump in the road and have been for weeks and months and perhaps decades. I think it's great that there are smart cars in the car park and beaten up cars. I think it's great that there are elderly people in this room and younger people in this room, that there are professional people in this room. Uh, there are all sorts of people in this room. And the last thing I want to do is to say, it's ungodly to be X rich. That's not what I'm saying. If God has trusted you with finances and wealth, praise God. Steward it well. Don't let it deceive you. Don't let it become your hope and your idol. In fact, in the Bible it says, don't give me too much or too little, lest I say, who is God? But think about your wealth benefiting the community, even to your own disadvantage. As uh, Emily read about Chronicles, how dare we give something that's cost us nothing? I think giving should impact how you live. That's a good rule of thumb, I think. 10% plus Jesus gave it all, plus it needs to impact how I'm living. How dare I give something that's costing me nothing? So we're going to come to communion now, which is just a wonderful uh, re-enacting of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who poured out his life for us. Emily, would you come and lead us? Um, We know the Bible verses that though he was rich, he became poor. Can you say that? Have there been moments in your life where in that moment you were rich, then you did something and you became poor? We need to have moments where we are sacrificially generous to one another that the generosity we enact brings life. We all know that when we're dead, it does us no good. So let's think about it in the land of the living, in light of the day of wrath that's coming. Now let's fix our eyes on Jesus because he freely gave his life for us. So we're going to celebrate communion. This is something Jesus told his disciples to do. He said, whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So it's like a mini meal. And we take the bread and we break it. That's remembering Christ's body broken for us. We drink the wine. We remember Christ's blood shed for us. 
And this is something that followers of Christ do to remember what Jesus has done for us. There are little communion pots at various stations at the back of your block, at the back of your hall. I suggest that you, in the next couple of songs, find a moment to go and get a pot for communion and to thank God for his enormous, life-changing generosity to us. Does that make sense? Let's stand and worship God.